You're listening to Endeavor Against Extremism, brought to you by The Clarion Project. I'm your host, Shireen Kadosi. I've always felt that the power of stories could never be underestimated. Stories are, are the most human thing about us, and if we can understand our crises at this point, using a framework of stories and narratives by speaking to real people, by understanding the real conversations that really should be happening at this hour that aren't always brought to you, then we can perhaps endeavor to understand our world today and our place in it, as well as learn the skills to build the world that we want so that we don't have to go the route of other groups of people who have felt that in times of extreme stress and duress, the only way to survive was to become more extreme. My name is Arnold Michaelis. I'm a storyteller, filmmaker, speaker, educator, author, consultant, and all of my work is informed and driven by my history as a white nationalist who left in 1994. Arno, it's great to have you here. When we speak of gender issues at large, there's a lot of emphasis on the feminine, and I don't think we talk about the masculine. I'd like to spend some time today to look at just what it means to be a man in the context of violent extremism. And I wanna talk to you about that because you mentioned that when you became a father, it was sort of a triggering point for your de-radicalization journey. What was it about being a dad that helped pull you out of the movement? I think uh, being a dad, particularly to a daughter, and really experiencing that that gentleness and the the feeling of being responsible for this little being, and in particular this little girl in the world, and, and thinking about what kind of world I wanted her to grow up in, really made me uh, reach the conclusion that I never wanted my daughter to, to know violence as I had, uh, certainly not as a victim of violence, and, and not as a perpetrator of violence either. And I, I felt the same way about hate. I, I didn't want hate to be, a word my daughter had any familiarity with whatsoever. That's not the typical view that people have or the way that you describe your your role as a father. That's not what people typically think of when they think of a man or, or a former violent extremist or an extremist in any capacity, especially right now, even if we remove the entire extremist element of it, we have this broader conversation on masculinity and toxic masculinity. How do you see the larger conversation on, let's say, patriarchy or toxic masculinity in light with how your experience has been as a father and how your perspective has changed as a man? Well, my first thought in the broader topic of patriarchy is that um, it's a huge mistake to, to think that we can somehow uh, out-aggro patriarchy. But most of the people who go on about patriarchy are very angry and very aggressive, and they, they want to smash it and do all kinds of other aggressive things. And patriarchy is literally built out of aggression. So you're, you're like trying to diminish a, a mountain of cow manure by throwing more cow manure at it. And I, I think uh, t- tactically it's a very unwise um, approach. I, I also think um, it's very good that we're talking about patriarchy. I, I think it's good that we talk about masculinity. But 
we got to be very mindful about uh, the approach that we use when we talk about it. And when we focus on toxic masculinity and we focus on everything wrong with masculinity without talking about what's right, we're really just exacerbating uh, those problems. And we're also going to shut down all the people who need to have this conversation first and foremost. So I, I make a point of talking about healthy masculinity. And to me, healthy masculinity means uh, discipline and service and uh, a will to sacrifice your own uh, comfort at times and, and your own uh, fun in order to, to provide for the people that you love and, and also to provide for, for society and to, to do what's best to, to uh, make our society a better place. And it, on top of that, on a personal level, I think masculinity is really about being uh, honest about your vulnerabilities and not fleeing from them. We, we have this image of masculinity where men aren't, if you're a man, you're not afraid of anything. You're not, you don't hurt, you don't uh, fear, and, and you pound your chest and just like roar in response to all these ideas. And, and that's by no means uh, something that was invented in Europe, and it's not, <laughs> it's not exclusive to any certain demographic of people. I've traveled the world, and, and I see uh, what's wrong with masculinity demonstrated by every demographic you can imagine. Um, so it, it's really, it's a human issue. And, and I think that uh, if men can find the courage to uh, stop running from their vulnerability and, and actually be very open and honest about their vulnerability, first of all, it, to me, it's a much more manly thing to do. It's, it's the difficult path rather than the easy path. And, and again, masculinity means you take that difficult path because it's the right thing to do, not just because um, it's... You, it's uh, something that's uh, something that's that's out of your realm um, you don't flee from things because they're hard you do them because they're hard rather than avoiding them and uh, I, I think that's kind of all rolls into this broader conversation that we're having as a society on patriarchy and masculinity when we look at patriarchy and masculinity and we look at the the sort of force that's going against it with with this interpretation of femininity one of the things i see is this sort of power struggle or this sense of um push and pull because of a sense of inequality do you think that that would be an accurate assessment that there is a power struggle and, and if that's so how do you define power in the context of both the masculine and the feminine especially as a father to a daughter you know what would you teach her about uh, what does it mean to be powerful as a man so she has the right model and then also how does that reconcile with vulnerability and then how do you have power as a as a woman or as, as a female in this world well I, I that's a great angle to look at this from and I, I think to just discuss power in general is crucial first I believe that all human beings have the power to craft the lens that resolves their reality. My life is an example of this. There was a time when I willfully constructed a lens that told me that my skin color made me superior to other people, uh, threatened by other people, at war with everyone else, and it just nearly destroyed my life. 
today I willfully craft a lens that says human beings have more in common than different and that our experience is something to be grateful for, for good, bad, and especially ugly, and that's had a corresponding effect on my life as well. Is it easier for me to do this because I'm a straight white dude living in the United States? Sure. And that's, I have no problem conceding that, but it doesn't change the fact that every single human being on this planet has that capacity. And when we get too wrapped up in political interpretations of what the world is and how it should be, we tend to lose sight of this power that we all have. And to me, that's absolutely tragic. Uh, many of the people who are who claim to be fighting to give agency to marginalized populations are actually depriving them of this primal agency without which no other agency can happen. Can you give me an so, example of that? Well, if uh, you, you tell a, a, a young black kid in the inner city that uh, everything wrong with the world is because of systemic racism and it's all beyond his control, that he's just this helpless piece of flotsam and jetsam in the world of white supremacy, uh, you're literally destroying that kid's agency to do anything about his personal situation and all, and especially to do anything about these systemic problems that are being lamented. And, and that's heartbreaking to me, and I, I see it over and over and over again. And, and you can use that example with any group um, that is following an oppression narrative, whether it's a, it's a white nationalist, which where the oppression narrative is key, uh, white nationalists believe that white people are oppressed and, and that uh, the only agency they have is to hate Jews and hate people of color. And other than that, they can't improve their life because of all the, the you know, this ominous Jewish plot to kill all the white people. Um, when I'm talking to someone in that situation, the first thing I want to do is, is get across to them that they have every bit of agency to change their life for the better and that uh, it, it's... <laughs> Jews or anybody else can't stop them. How would you tell your daughter what it means to be a powerful woman, especially in an age where uh, right now she's going to be growing up in a world where um, you know men are the baddies and the patriarchy is out to get you and everything's it's another victim narrative essentially. Uh, in, in its own way, creating another sort of extremist bubble because we're seeing, and as a woman, of course, I see the same thing happening where there is such a push to create this enemy out of out of men without looking at what does it actually mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be feminine? What does sacred femininity mean? Uh, how do we balance the, the genders or how do we balance within each other? Instead, it's just this sort of smash and grab in the same way that, they're, like you said, they've been complaining about the smash and grab framework of the last millennia. How would you, when your daughter becomes of age, how would you have that conversation with her so that she's not following another sort of extremist movement that's just packaged in a new sort of packaging? Yeah, I, I love that question. And you, you hit it on the head with the, the idea of balance. I, I am a feminist. I, I believe that a healthy human being and a healthy society has a balance of masculine and feminine energies. They're, they're both crucial for, for health of a society or an individual. And I believe our society as a human society has been way, way out of whack toward the masculine side for hundreds if not thousands of years. Uh, it's important to understand there's a lot of inertia behind that. 
Um, it's important to understand we're not going to smash our way out of it. We're not going to destroy our way out of it. We're not going to do any of these like hyper-masculine things to, to diminish this imbalance. It, I, I believe to diminish the imbalance, we need to really focus on feminine energy. And to me, that's uh, that means focusing on the strengths of uh, what I believe are feminine qualities of human life, like kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, compassion. The, those things are all what I call gentle power that uh, can really have a, a, a much more poignant and long-lasting effect than any sort of aggressive power can. And uh, we don't value those things as a society as we should. So I, I think if we did value those qualities as much as they should be valued, that would go a long way towards addressing this imbalance between masculine and feminine energies. Um, I always say I, I am a feminist, but I prefer my feminism without all the testosterone. And <laughs> that's, that's something that uh, I, I have talked to my daughter about, and she's, she's naturally had a very good grasp of this. Um, my daughter is physically a, a very beautiful young woman, and she's had to deal with a lot of the, the nonsense that women have held to deal with. She's been catcalled, she's been sexually harassed, all these things that are, are absolutely not acceptable. Uh, but rather than let that those things make her bitter, um, she she looks inward and, and thinks about what she can do about it and, and how um, the way she looks at the world uh, will will affect her response to these things and, and also re affect the world in a way that uh, will hopefully lead toward toward a place where um, that disregard of her humanity is less likely to happen. You wrote a book called The Gift of Our Wounds, and, and, and this is the next question that I've got for you because it ties in with some of the, the words that you've already brought up in, in, a, in the last conversation. I want to ask you a few fast response questions. Whatever comes to your mind first, a word, a phrase, or a sentence. What is vulnerability? Vulnerability is your, your personal fears. Uh, do, will people like me? Will people love me? I'm, I'm afraid they won't. That, that, that's an example of vulnerability. What is a wound? A wound is, is damage to your being, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, intellectual. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is letting go. It's, uh, and and it's, it's vengeance. It, it's uh, removing the the control that, that past harm has on you. What is creative expression? Creative expression is uh, kind of the embodiment of human imagination. It's bringing that that uh, wonder of, of our imagination to some sort of external expression that other people can experience and appreciate. What is kindness? Kindness is uh, doing something nice for another person uh, without any expectation of reciprocation or reward or congratulations. What is curiosity? Curiosity is uh, the 
the acknowledgement of, of possibility and the, the wonder of it to, to think uh, outside of the, the limits that our prior experience may have put upon us. What is race? Race is a uh, social construct that I believe is, is a cancer upon humanity. And uh, I, everything I do is, is hopefully working towards a place where we can cure that cancer and live without it. What is holiness? Holiness, I would say, is the, the embodiment of, of what's best about being a human being. Uh, the embodiment of love, of service, of uh, sacrifice, wisdom, and, and gratitude. What is war? War is failure. It's, it's a failure to solve a problem in a, a, in a reasoned adult human way. And uh, it's, um, it's also a cancer upon humanity that needs to be done away with. What is love? Love is thinking of, of another person's needs and, and existence uh, above and beyond and, and really outside of your own. Uh, wanting the best for that person um, regardless of, of whether that's good or bad for you. And finally, what is compassion? Compassion is bearing witness to suffering without judgment, without uh, attachment, without injecting our own personal narrative, simply just looking at a person and, and saying they're suffering. Arno, I want to talk to you for like 10 days. That's, I love these answers so much. They're so, wow, you are, you are truly spectacular. The, I, I love, I just love everything you're saying and the words that you're using are, are so they're not words that I typically hear in this in this sort of industry. These are words I hear outside of this industry. So thank you for bringing that in into the fold here because I think this is really this is really where we need it. Um, when we look at the world today and how how angry and how hateful it is, it's uh, if I can speak quickly to my own journey in this pathway, it's been where you have so many questions about you know, where your own background is, the things that I was raised with, and you come and you reject it and you try to find something new. But when you try to find something new, what you find is another version of the same thing. So you find the polar opposite. You know, when you come out of um, extremism, then you're taught to sort of, you, you hate the thing that you were before. You come out of, uh, let's say, the system of patriarchy as, as the interpretation of radical feminists has become, and you end up hating the, the thing you were before and you end up in a way uh, really violating the nature of what it means to be a woman. When you come out of, uh, let's say a lot of Muslims come out of Islam and rather than understand or have compassion for your experience and the faith, they end up hating religion. They end up, you know, they end up really sort of uh, responding to frustration with, with a, a wall and greater sort of resistance towards, towards understanding the thing that they that they walked away from. And mm. so, and right now what we're dealing with with politics is rather than look at each other and, and sit in communion, it's it's a thing that I was talking about the other day where the the structure of our society is a gladiator pit, a gladiator right. arena. And you can't have progress in, in that 
arena. The gladiator pit is meant for the fight. That's it. None of these other these other words and these definitions that you're speaking to um, belong there. There's no space for them. And so I love that you're creating a paradigm that's very, very different. I have a couple other generic questions for you, but I, I feel that... Can, can just... I respond to, to yes, your comment? Please. So it, which I, I love. Um, every example you've given, it's important to understand that, that the the driving factor behind each example is trauma. Mm. For, for radical feminists who are really angry and they want to smash the patriarchy, they're not doing that just because smashing things gives them jollies. They're, doing, they're, they're using that rhetoric and that angle because they're hurting. Exactly. That they, they have been traumatized, whether directly by the act of some man or uh, by proxy through immersing themselves in, in a world of outrage. It, it doesn't matter whether the trauma was direct or by proxy or where it came from. Just the, the bottom line is they're traumatized. And hurt people hurt people. And that's why they, they have that kind of response in, in the exact same way that uh, a white nationalist who's traumatized himself silly by convincing himself that blacks and Jews and gays and Muslims are all out to get him, um, he's traumatized too. And that's why he's, he's acting that way. And he wants to smash the Zionist occupational government or whatever. It's all the same human emotional thought process, and and to me that's actually really exciting news because it revolve it reveals a very uh, poignant and powerful commonality be between two seemingly disparate uh, ideas, two disparate people, two disparate ideologies. When actually they're they're very very similar, more similar than alike. If you talk about a gladiator pit. Uh, pit bulls have a pretty bad reputation as a dog breed. They're, they're, they have a reputation of being mean and, and attacking people. Well, if, if you take a chihuahua and you beat it every day and feed it gunpowder, it's going to be just as mean as any pit bull. Uh, that, that's hurt people, hurt people, hurt creatures, hurt other creatures. And that, that's, uh, to me, that's acknowledging that that's an exercise of compassion to say that I understand where this is coming from. It's coming from trauma. And, and if we don't start at that point, mm -hmm. uh, especially with the people that we find most distasteful, especially with the ideas that we find most uh, repulsive, that we're, we don't stand a chance of uh, solving these problems. But the good news is, is that we, with compassion, I, I believe there's no problem that human beings can't solve. Absolutely. I, I was going to say that I had a couple other generic questions to to the issue of gender or on the issue of gender, which I'm going to throw away because I love where we're going with this and I'm going to stick with the direction that we're, we're at right now. Sure. When we look at exactly what we're talking about, the, the idea that a lot of these reactions are trauma-based, and you mentioned the idea that, I, I love the analogy that you used of the lens, that you have the ability to shape your lens. And how you shape your lens determines your worldview, your reality, everything that revolves around that reality. How can we, how can we take the, the language that you're using, this very powerful language that you're using in terms of compassion, kindness, sanctity, forgiveness, uh, even definitions of war being a failure. How do we create a new lens that holistically addresses the broad sort of spectrum of behavior patterns that are that are pushing people towards extremist rhetoric extremist reactions whether it's smashing this 
group or smashing that group instead of really just coming together? How do we how do we build a new lens that holistically deals with all of it? Because we look at typically four or five different ideologies, right? We look at uh, violent Islamism, which is a bastardization of Islam. We look at the neo-Nazi movement, the far-right movement. We look at anti-fascists, whatever, uh, social militarization. But what I'm noticing is new mushrooming versions of extremism. We just haven't identified them officially as extremism yet. So the problem is going to continue despite whether you know whether we solve um, the issue of race tomorrow, the, 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 the neural pathways, the, the patterns of the way that people think hasn't been healed so that even though we squash this extremism or that extremism where we deal with it by dealing with the problem that surrounds it, other forms of it are still going to manifest. Other behaviors are still going to manifest. The question is how do we build a new lens using the language that you're bringing up, which is such powerful, beautiful language. And thank you for bringing it up as a man, as a strong man, because if I bring it up, it's seen as just something that's weak and feminine and pushed off as as being sort of out there and, and foo-foo-y. So I love that you're bringing it up as a strong man. How do you create a new lens that helps re-sort of orient what it means to be human at this time for, for every group? There's a... a brilliant book by Yuval Noah Harari called Sapiens and in the book he talks about uh, prior to the industrial revolution in human history prior to the agricultural revolution there is something he calls the cognitive revolution which was essentially human beings developing the ability to tell stories and to believe stories most importantly and that ability that we have, that to our knowledge is unique in the animal kingdom, is what allows us to organize ourselves in an infinite number of beings. Uh, a good example is religion. There, there's 1.8 billion Muslims on the planet. Um, and while within that 1.8 billion, there's a big spectrum. There's radical, queer, smash the patriarchy, cis, <laughs> gender fluid Muslims, and then there's very, very conservative Wahhabi Muslims and everything in between. And, but they all agree on the same basic story that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had received the word of Allah and he brought it to us. Uh, that's all. It's just a story that makes 1.8 billion people on this planet uh, from this radically disparate backgrounds uh, from all over the planet geographically don't speak the same language, but they all believe the same story. That's how powerful a story is. Probably the most powerful story on the planet Earth right now is money. I, I imagine there's probably 98 or 99% of the 8 billion people on this planet all believe in the story of money, which means I got a little plastic card in my pocket and I can go to places and swipe it in exchange for things. If we didn't believe in that story, money wouldn't work. So we, it's, the proof of concept is there. Uh, we, we can all believe in the same story. I think the, the step to get there to the point where we're changing our stories to be ones that are of healing and connection rather than trauma and separatism is to first of all admit that these stories are malleable, that they're, they're not set in stone. Um, and I, as a Buddhist, like this is literally my religion. The, the only constants that we know of in this universe are change and interdependence. 
And while I have a lot of very passionate, strong opinions on a ton of different things, the only two things I am ever going to fall on my sword for are change and interdependence. And even those things, I'm open if somehow someone can somehow prove to me that, that those that constant change and interdependence aren't true. I, I'm I'm always uh, I'd be very interested to listen to how someone can rationalize that. But if if we take that first step and just admit that every all of our relationship with the world is defined by the story we believe in, and that story is the lens. Um, then and and then we admit that that story is malleable. Now we've we've uh, introduced the possibility of changing that story. There's another uh, brilliant book called Deviate by a neuroscientist named Bull Lotto, and he talks very much about uh, kind of what you were hitting on neuroplasticity, how uh, our, our minds rewire themselves to according to how we use them. And also about how perception is really the only reality that we know of. And uh, Bo talks about if you want to get someone to go from point A to point B ideologically or in in any circumstance, the the first step isn't going from A to B. The first step is going to not A. they They have to realize that there's something other than A. And, and until they, they admit, until they acknowledge that there is a, a something other than A, there's a B, maybe even a C, and all down the alphabet, um, no, no movement from A is going to happen. So when we admit that uh, A is just a story, and it's malleable, and there's other possibilities other than A, now we, we are not A, and, and we have the ability to move on to B and, and wherever else. You are such a gift. I, I would love, I would, <laughs> oh, you are truly oh. such a gift. Um, I'm so honored to know that you exist and that I've gotten to know you more personally today. And I'm going to ask um, one last question. How did you, how did you come to Buddhism? Uh, my daughter. <laughs> she, uh, she started having a rough time in school around sixth grade. And she just like started gravitating towards Dalai Lama books for solace. And she was always really fascinated with it and talking about meditation. And I, my whole life, I didn't know anything about Buddhism other than it involved suffering. And I'm like, I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer? <laughs> That's a, a lame religion. I don't want to, you know, who wants to do that? But uh, the her interest in it kind of continued to pique mine. And when I was going to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in 2009, I, there was a meditation course offered through the the rec department and i took that and uh it, it really has changed everything for me i at that point in my life i had been uh alcohol free for five years uh, i was i started writing i was in the process of reconciling my past but i i was still like i still hated myself deep down and i felt like i i should never forgive myself for the harm that i'd done and I was trying to find peace with that, but you, you're, you're never going to find peace with holding a grudge against yourself. And as I sat down on the meditation cushion for the first time and was uh, dealing with the thought of a double cheeseburger with the works intruding on my attempt to focus on my breath, it hit me that uh, the grudge I held against myself was made out of the same raw material as that thought of the double cheeseburger was. And therefore, if I can work with one, logically, I can work with the other. 
Now, granted that grudge against myself had decades of trauma and suffering and harm done to other people, and it's it's certainly not the same thing, but it is made of the same stuff. So at that point, the, the possibility for self-forgiveness was realized, and uh, really, most importantly, I think, a love for the process of working with these things was realized, and, and that's what I've come to believe life is really all about. It's, it's loving the process of it for good, bad, and, and especially for ugly, instead of trying to run from it and flee from it, just like embrace that process and uh, with curiosity and with lightheartedness and, and see the beauty in it. And, uh, and I, I have to say, by no means does that mean it's okay, the harm that I've done. I, I've hurt a lot of people with my bare hands, and I, I have no idea how many people were hurt by the, the traumatized kids that I unleashed upon the world. And um, nothing makes that okay. But I, I work on self-forgiveness because I know if I'm hating myself, it's going to diminish my ability to reach people who are out there doing harm today. And I, I really want to bring about a society where all people are valued and included. And um, in order to do that, I have to value myself. Mm -hmm. And I have to include myself. I, I can't hate myself for who I was. I, I, all I can do is uh, be the best person I can be today. Moving from a place of unworthiness to worthiness would seem, in your story, would seem so different than where we are today, where in, in the world things are driven by, uh, it seems like things are driven by ego, by demand, by uh, uh, this idea that things are owed to us. But when I look at the story that you are talking about, the story that you're imagining that we could still be living, I feel like the story that could bring us together is, is a story of worthiness, worthiness that really ties in some of these key concepts that not only, you know, what does it mean to value someone else, to sit and share space with someone else that you may not agree with without going into a combat mode, but at the same time, what does it mean to find worthiness within yourself and, and how are we really deviating from that as people by falling into the trap of uh, the stories that have been given to us, the stories that we've inherited as as people, or are or are sort of entering as we go into adulthood. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, again we went back to curiosity and lightheartedness. I, I find it just deliciously ironic that um, that the answer to a lot of that is just admitting that we're each one of us is every bit as flawed as the other. Uh, I, I was talking to a friend last night about confirmation bias. This idea that uh, human beings kind of seek out information that confirms their existing biases. And uh, I, I also noticed that most of the people you see talking about confirmation bias seem to, to come from an angle like they're somehow free from it, <laughs> that it doesn't affect them, that it's just, oh, look at the, this person wallowing in their confirmation bias. I'm like, isn't that a form of confirmation bias, actually? <laughs> Uh, and, and, and that's that's key is is just to to admit that that we're all flawed yeah. and that we all we all share an equal capacity to harm or to heal and when we start convincing ourselves otherwise that like oh well that group of people is they're just a little more likely to do harm than I am or I'm less likely to do harm because I'm part of this group than that group is we're, we're setting the stage for violence. Yeah. And uh, it, it's also, I, I think it's a, it's a form of spiritual laziness. 
to, to uh, the, the word spiritual materialism has been used um, to, to think that uh, you've got all the answers and, and that uh, you're, you're here to lay them out for everybody else. Um, it, it boils down to certainty. Mm. Certainty is something I think about a lot. Uh, again, in Bolato's book, Deviate, he talks a lot about certainty. And I, <laughs> I find myself on a daily basis saying all sorts of things, and I'm very, very certain of them. And it doesn't mean they don't get said, but every time I say them, I ask myself, I'm like, are you really, really certain of that? Yeah. Is that like the only way that this this issue can be looked at? Is that the only possibility here? And I check myself, and, and ultimately, again, I've been less it's about change or interdependence, I'm like, well, there, maybe there are other possibilities. And that's all it takes. It doesn't say, you don't have to say like, I'm wrong, all my political beliefs are wrong, all my opinions are wrong. All you gotta say is like, hey, there, there, there's, a, there's Maybe there's other possibilities here that I haven't considered, that I'm not aware of. That that's all you gotta say, and and saying it is is super transformational. I look at the uh, the metaphysics of dimensional thinking when you look at groups who who are described by who can be described by what you're saying that they that they have this confirmation bias that they're in their own echo chamber and they'll think that they're in this little bubble and then they're targeting or attacking another bubble and the bubbles go on and on and on. However, all the bubbles are on the same stupid plane. <laughs> no one's, <really, laughs> right, right, yeah. no one's escaped that. So it's like, how do you sort of, you know, push push a bubble off of that, pop the bubble, get them on another plane? I think that is the biggest challenge of our time as as humans. I think that is when we look at even the generational crisis of extremism, climate change, whatever people are convinced is a generational crisis of our time. It's really, uh, it's the fact that we're still stuck on the on the same page. Of what it means to be human and you know some of us are trying to churn, turn the page churn the story and and that's why i really value uh, the conversation we're having today i think that's gonna grow, go a really long way and i'd love to have one again in the future um hopefully yeah hopefully it'll be a little longer because now that i know what kind of mind i'm working with i'm gonna have a whole new level of questions next time <laughs> awesome well, I, I appreciate that Shereen. And, and just know that all everything i had to say was evoked by you so this is a, a collaboration that uh, wouldn't have happened in a vacuum and i'm very grateful for your thought that made it happen and i'd also like to uh plug my organization Please. parents for peace uh people can reach us at parentsforpeace.org uh, with the number four and we also have a national United States helpline at one eight four nine four four. It might be eight four four. Shame on me for not knowing it offhand. Shoot it over but, to me because I'll I'll put it in the write up and I'll put it in the in the podcast description as well. Yeah, I mean we we put it in the if you edit this in that'd be great. Um, it's it's one eight four 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 nine piece. And uh, people can call this number if they're concerned about a loved one getting mixed up in any sort of violent extremism, whether it's violent Islamism or white nationalism, far right, far left. We have formers of every one of those flavors uh, advising and helping, as well as a, a very uh, accomplished staff of medical health, or excuse me, mental health professionals. And uh, that, that's the work, that, that's the organization I do my intervention and prevention work with. Fantastic. And then people have a lot of downtime right now. Tell me about uh, tell me about the book, The Gift of the Gift of Our Wounds. Where can people yeah, get that? If, uh, people can learn more about The Gift of Our Wounds at giftofourwounds.com. 
And uh, you can find my blog as well as links to my first book at mylifeafterhate.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Arno. We'll do this again soon, hopefully. Awesome. Thank you, Shereen. Have a good one. You too. Cheers.